Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini, represented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, good friend of the program, Coles Wicker, is back. We're going to talk about NBA trade deadline targets, uh, you know, either teams or players that should be looked at as potential pieces to move uh, during the NBA's trade deadline, which is slowly but surely uh, coming up on us very, very, I don't even know if it's slowly, I think it's rapidly coming up on us. Uh, And then we're going to talk about some college basketball stuff. Duke, Virginia was just kind of a scouting dream on Saturday. Uh, It was terrific. And then Nasir Little is starting to break out. And then finally, we're going to talk about the Naismith Defensive Player of the Year list because, oh boy, uh, <laughs> that that is a list. Um, we're sponsored here by Robin Hood today. We'll get to that later. Cole, how you doing, man? Doing good. We've reached the part of the college season where I have like 13 games on my DVR, so I'm already in catch-up mode, but it's fun uh, conference season. And yeah, I mean, we've, got, we've gotten some really good games recently. Duke, Virginia, like we're going to talk about today, was I, I don't know if we can deduce so many takeaways from it, but it was at least really fun to watch. Well, it's just a spectacular game. Like, there's not really another... I don't know that there are crazy, yep. like, takeaways. Like, I think that a lot of players just confirmed what they are throughout the course of that game, right? But we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit here. Let's start with NBA trade deadline. Uh, the trade deadline, I should have this in front of me, but I don't. Uh, it is on, uh, what, February 7th, I believe, is the NBA trade deadline? That sounds right. It's got to be a Thursday, right, typically? E- sure. Let me. I'm actually looking <laughs> at the calendar now. Uh, I, I'm quickly pulling up the calendar because I'm an <laughs> idiot and didn't have this. Uh, February 7th is the trade deadline. Uh, it is a Thursday, correct? So we are so about two and a half there, weeks slowly. out. Yeah, we're about <laughs> two and a half weeks out. I feel like it is like kind of creeping up on us a little bit more quickly than what it typically does, I guess. Like, do you feel that way? I do this year just because I haven't been as involved with like the cap stuff. Like, I don't have updated cap sheets like I usually do. So I haven't really been paying attention to that aspect. I've watched a lot of NBA, but not from the vantage point of like identifying teams, luxury tax, like max cap room situations, all that stuff. So, yeah, th- without those details, it kind of has come up a little bit quicker than usual. I think that like maybe we're still adjusting to like it's so it's two weeks earlier than what it used to be. Right. Like it always used to be like the middle to end of February. And then last year they moved it up. I think it was February 8th Uh, this year. It is February 7th. So like this is the earliest that I can really remember an NBA trade deadline. And I think that what the the first thing we should talk about within that context is probably just how few sellers it seems like there are. Like, do you think that that's probably the best place to start? I do because I mean the sellers you're right there's a finite amount but they're pretty obvious as far as what teams are going to be looking to sell right so I would say Cleveland uh, should probably be breaking that thing down for spare parts I would say that the Knicks are in a weird space where they want to sell but they want to do it on their terms and try and get below the max cap space uh, target that they have to get to to be able to you know easily sign Kevin Durant this summer uh, Phoenix I think should be a seller. Chicago should be a seller. And Atlanta, if they can find a way to move any of their pieces, should probably be a seller. Memphis is in a very strange spot right now. Uh, they are 1-9 in nine in their last 10 games. And I think if you extend beyond that, it's even worse. They're really struggling right now. I think that there's a very strong case for them to sell, uh, especially because to 
keep their draft pick from Boston, it needs to be in the top eight. Otherwise, they have to move it on to Boston. Um, Orlando yep. is in an interesting spot. I think that they would probably prefer to compete, given that they're in the Eastern Conference. They're only two and a half games out of the playoffs right now. So I, I don't know that they're necessarily a traditional seller. Dallas, I think, has a chance to tear it down pretty substantially if they would be able to if only because they want to keep their draft pick if possible. They want to uh, move that pick into the top five, or at least as close as they can to the top five. So it wouldn't surprise me to see them move anything, but I think Detroit wants to make the playoffs. Washington wants to make the playoffs. New Orleans needs to make the playoffs. Minnesota would prefer to make the playoffs. Sacramento is kind of in an interesting spot. Uh, I think you could make cases a lot of different directions for Sacramento, either adding or subtracting players. Uh, And then L.A., of course, those are your teams out of the playoffs right now. The Lakers aren't selling anything unless uh, they get one of their expiring deals off the books for a long term piece. So or not necessarily a long term piece, but just something that could help them a little bit more substantially this season. Uh, I, I think they're more in the buyer market, basically. I I hesitate with where to start with this in terms of players. So where, where do you want to go first? Yeah, I think we should just do an overview of some of the players on the teams that we think are sure. going to be sellers really quickly. So I think safely we can say the bottom five teams in the league, New York, Cleveland, Atlanta, Phoenix, and then Chicago. Interesting players in these rosters. I mean, there's some young guys, too, that could be available. Frank Nielakina on the Knicks is probably the headliner there. Um, very interesting situation there. I'm not saying for sure they're going <laughs> to they're going to move on from him or not, but that's at least an option. You have Chicago with a guy like Bobby Portis. I even think Phoenix with Kelly Oubre. I mean, he's been good for them, but they could still look to move him if they don't want to pay him long term to a team that wants his restricted free agency rights. He could be valuable to a playoff team as far as a wing. Those are hard to come by. Atlanta, I'm pretty sure is going to make a move of some sort. Whether that's Kent Bazemore, Torian Prince is definitely a name that I mentioned on the podcast before. I would be very interested to see what they could do with him Dwayne Dedman you get to Cleveland you know I don't I don't know what to do with Cleveland as far as how <laughs> valuable their players are frankly like I think they're going to probably look to maneuver around but what are their really gets on their roster so yeah let's start with Cleveland I mean Rodney Hood has like a sort of no trade clause because he was on he's on the one-year deal right yes uh Alec Burks is on an expiring contract J.R. Smith I mean, like, JR, I think it's going to be really hard to move him unless a team is really prioritizing that uh, next year where it's just a totally non-guaranteed deal. Like, it'd be really funny if the Knicks moved, like, Tim Hardaway for JR Smith. (laughs) I think that's exactly the kind of move, though, is something in that realm just with that contract. I look at Cleveland's roster, and that's what stands out to me. They're not going to move Sexton. Um, Larry Nance has got that extension. Uh, it's very difficult to find a lot of gets on this roster. Like you said, Hood with an implicit no trade. I think he could have some value to some teams, but we've seen all the character issues in the past. I don't know how much he's going to fetch you. So I do think they're going to try to maybe maneuver around, maybe utilize any kind of you know future space. We'll see what they do with JR. But this is one of the teams where you, you think they're going to do something. It's just very hard to pinpoint what that is. Yeah, I mean, I don't really see a team taking on both years of Tristan Thompson. Do you? I can't imagine what team that would be. It would have to. The thing is, like, if you're going to trade a contract like that, you're, you're attaching draft pick capital, right? 
you're ta- you're if you're Cleveland, you're you don't have to do that, and they're not going to want to do that because they're rebuilding. They're not going to want to trade their picks. Right. So I, I can see like a team like like Atlanta would take Tristan Thompson, I think, if they got compensation for it. But Cleveland's not going to trade that. Right. And like, why would you try and clear the cap space? You know, I, I think if anything, a team is trying a team that wants Tristan Thompson is getting him to try and use him in the playoffs. Otherwise, like, I just don't see what the purpose is. Right. Uh, like if you're Atlanta, you take on that deal. Cleveland's not going to attach the picks. I think Cleveland would probably wanting to trade Tristan for something valuable. I, I just don't know what that move is, even though I think Tristan is having like actually a pretty good year. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a fair argument for sure. I just don't know, like, what is the value of his contract next year? I'm not sure if I want to pay Tristan Thompson, who I think is a third big ideally at this stage of his career, $18.5 million without right. receiving it, anything back in addition. Yeah. And we should talk about Kevin Love, too. I just can't see a team deciding to take that plunge right now with all of the uncertainty in regard to his injury. 100%. And I think from Cleveland's vantage point, you'd be kind of selling at his lowest point right now because there is so much uncertainty. I, I realize it's in the former part of the contract. So maybe if you deal him in 2021, you're not getting as much value, of course. But right now, it just seems like the inopportune time to do that. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Uh, on the uh, Where do you want to go next? Do you want to go with the Knicks? Do you want to go with Chicago? Let's do the Knicks. Okay. So the Knicks, their goal is to get below the line that they need to sign a max salary player. Uh, right now they have, what do they have guaranteed next year? It looks like just over $48 million guaranteed. So they have 48 plus they have, uh, Kristaps $17 million cap hold, which they're certainly going to utilize. That's 65 million. Um, I can't imagine them like really hanging on to any of like Hazonia, Moutier, Cantor, any of their cap holds like on a substantial level. So you're talking about 65 million uh, next season. I believe Lance Thomas has a bit of money guaranteed um, that might be accounted for within that. You have Trier's money, which I think is a good deal. I think they would probably prefer to keep him if they could. Um, the, the deal here that makes the most sense to move is Courtney Lee. I, I think that a team could actually use Courtney Lee right now. It's like a bench guard. I know he has 12 million left, but I think there are teams out there that could actually decide, hey, Courtney Lee can maybe potentially help us. I agree with that. I just, He's one of those interesting ones because he sits right on the precipice of would you offer a first-round pick for him. He does have next year, as far as guaranteed, for $12.8 million. So you're at least getting that second year. Teams won't trade first-rounders, for the most part, for expirings unless they are restricted free agents. So you get those rights. So I don't know if you can find a team that's like, oh, we're going to trade a first-rounder for Courtney Lee. But I do think he can help teams. And I think there is a deal to be made. It just comes down to do the Knicks want to trade him. What what is the returning piece? Because they don't want long-term money. So trade Courtney Lee for maybe an expiring contract plus like a a nice second round pick is that a feasible return yeah like i don't see any way a team has given up a first round pick for courtney lee Uh, i'll just be honest like there's there's just no way um in regard to what you're looking for yeah if you got a second honestly for courtney lee if they got like any like if a team was willing to just take on that money and had like the salary cap to do so i think that they would just do it for free basically because there's just not a reason not to do that for them, right? Like, he's not playing. It helps them achieve their goals. Like, they, they would probably just take that for free, I think. 
It's interesting. There's one team that kind of comes to mind for him. They don't need another backcourt player. They need more of a three, but the Kings can get to a place where they can almost take him straight up into their cap space. They have to maneuver a little bit to get to that point, but they can, they're the team that's easiest to kind of make a deal of this magnitude. But again, they're looking for more of like a three. So they're looking more if Otto Porter became available, that'd be a target for them rather than Courtney Lee. But that's just another interesting player to add to that rotation potentially. Yeah, I just can't. I don't know why that would work. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why they would do that. Like, I would rather just, I would not want the money on my books next year if I was Sacramento and I'm in the middle of a ridiculous Western Conference and I've probably outperformed expectations this year, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I just think from their mindset, maybe they look and say, let's get one more veteran to make this playoff push. Like, I don't, I don't know how feasible that is, but they're one game out of the loss column for the eighth spot. So, like, they're right in the heat of this thing. So maybe they look at it and say, instead of Ben McLemore coming off the bench and giving us these minutes at times, maybe we can go with Courtney Lee and upgrade that position. And, you know, we're not a team that's a destination market in free agency anyway. Who are we really going to add in free agency next year that's going to be better than Courtney Lee? Him on, you know, at $12.8 million, that's not terrible for one year. So I can just see them maybe talking themselves into that because you get some short-term value if they do think they're going to try to make the playoffs, which it seems like they are. So the, the Knicks, it's a good question. They don't want to add anything to Tim Hardaway Jr. or Courtney Lee to make this move. I, do you think that they would have to add something to Courtney Lee? Maybe a second round pick potentially in some trades. I don't know if they're going to have to attach like a mega asset, though. It's not going to require if, if they move off Courtney Lee, it's not going to cost them like a first round pick. I, I don't think they would do that unless they go right up against the deadline for free agency. And teams are like, OK, we're not taking anything because we know what your situation is. It's that yeah. kind of leverage deal. But right now, if they made the trade, I don't think so. Yeah, I think that I agree with you. Uh, I think that they could probably do it like for an expiring contract and a second round pick, right? And like, and by second yes. round pick, I mean like 55 to 60 protected, like fake second round pick. You know what I mean? Um, with Tim Hardaway, I do think that they would have to attach something, even though he's pretty clearly the better player of the two. The problem is that his deal has two years after this one at a large number. Uh, he's basically two years, 37 million after this. I just don't see a team out there that makes a ton of sense for Tim Hardaway. Do you? I mean, we came here in Dallas. That's been the team throughout because they have Wes Matthews expiring contract. They can make the money work. and That in a straight up deal, if you're just getting rid of Wes Matthews expiring deal for Tim Hardaway, some guys have talked themselves into that because, you know, Tim Hardaway is a shooter around Luka. That makes some sense. I don't know if I go that way for Dallas just because I do think that they're a destination team. Um, as far as their market and free agency, I would play that card. But that is the predominant rumor that has been circulating for a while is to Dallas for Wesley Matthews in particular. Would, would a funny trade be Tim Hardaway and Frank Nilakina for Dennis Smith and Wes Matthews? <laughs> I knew you were going there, dude. <laughs> I, by the way, I wouldn't do that if I was either team, I don't think. I don't know if I would either, man. That's that's really tough. I, I get that conceptual. I mean, Nilakina conceptually fits really well next to Luka. But I, I don't know if I'd do that if I, if I was Dallas. I, I don't know if I like that long-term money for Tim Hardaway. And I would still probably take Dennis upside over Frank, who just – he hasn't been comfortable. I don't know if he's gotten really a fair shake in the league yet, but I'm not sure if I'm to the point where I really want to take like uh, that large of a risk on him. Yeah, I, I would not, to be honest. Uh, I, would, yeah. I would not want to be paying Harrison Barnes and uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. 
43 million dollars next year uh when the opportunity cost of that is having approximately a billion dollars in cap space right like that that's just what i would rather have if i'm dallas um i mean in terms of i mean you brought up nilakina that's an interesting talking point that i feel like we should kind of jump into i I guess like why why do you think the knicks would potentially move nilakina I'm just kind of going by the rumors of what we've heard and like in and out of the rotation, kind of been right. in the doghouse of the coach. And we don't, don't really know what to make of the situation. He hasn't really established himself as, as an, you know, a plus player. He's, I don't know if he's ever gotten a fair shake, though. So he's one of those weird players where they're not going to give him away. I think people need to put that away. It's not like they're just going to trade him to trade him. That's not going to happen. But I do think that they'd entertain deals potentially that could either net them, you know, a long term starter or something of that capacity. I'm just, again, I'm just kind of going by what I'm hearing on the internet, which is never really the right way to go about things, but it seems to be like a prevalent thing. We've heard this pretty much all year. It's like he's potentially available for the right price, and again, just not really established himself as like, it seems like he's a tier below like Kevin Knox for them now. Like they're like, Kevin Knox is maybe our best prospect um, outside of Porzingis. He's not really a prospect, but he's on a different tier than Neil Aquino. Kind of seems like he's being left behind in just how they're building this thing, if that makes sense. So if you're Atlanta, would you be willing to trade Jeremy Lin and Dwayne Dedman, uh, just those contracts, for, and you'd probably, if you're the Knicks here, you'd ship Dedman to a third team because I think he actually has value. Um, would you be willing to trade Jeremy Lin and Dwayne Dedman for the Tim Hardaway contract and Frank Nilakina? I think I would. Honestly, I think that that would be really interesting putting Neil Aquina next to Young and Herder. Like none of those guys is like a real three. Like, but I think Neil Aquina can guard a lot of threes. Like he plays up pretty well as far as that goes. So that's really, really interesting. I don't know about the dynamics of Tim Hardaway's past and stuff. He, he'd be kind of an interesting sixth man for them. He's kind of plays as a Torian Prince role because I think that Prince would be moved in that situation too somewhere. So I would definitely entertain that um, because I don't think that Atlanta is necessarily going to be like a free agent destination. I think they're going to build solely through their prospects and through the draft. Right. And if you're New York, you're theory here is if Nilakina is not really a part of what you're considering your long-term core anyway you're getting off of this massive Tim Hardaway contract for basically uh nothing and and like I said you would be getting the Dwayne Dedman deal and again you'd be able to ship the Dwayne Dedman deal pretty easily elsewhere uh essentially for an expiring deal and probably pick value I would think yeah, you could probably get a pick for Dwayne Devin, like second round. I think there's enough teams. We talked about Houston on the last podcast. They could probably see a market for that. I'd, I'd be more curious, honestly, in that trade, if Atlanta would include Torian Prince in some capacity, maybe do a third team. You could definitely create a framework that might be agreeable to multiple parties here. It'd be really funny if we're talking about like, so these teams are both sellers, right? And then we just see like a scrap heap, like <laughs> seller trade basically to uh, kind of help both of what they're looking for. I don't even know that I love that deal for Atlanta. Um, I, I get the conceptual fit of Nilakina and Trey Young together. Uh, I think that Nilakina would really help Trey on defense, but I mean, like I, I would just rather probably not have the, I mean, I guess like maybe the Hardaway money just doesn't mean as much to them. Like they just, don't have reason to not take it on it's not like they're a player in free agency yeah that's kind of what i'm getting at like they're not there's not a lot of opportunity cost with atlanta it's pretty clear what their trajectory is and how they're going to build this team it's not like they're going to be players in major free agency so it, it depends on their valuation of nilakina i mean that's what it comes down to is is this guy worth it to make this trade take on this hardaway money hardaway you know what you're getting like he, he can be a six-man scorer off the bench and i think he'd have a, an interesting role in atlanta because at least he can get buckets but if, if they feel like nilakina could play now next to her and Trey Young, that might be an interesting um, trade to pursue. Uh, who knows? 
Yeah. 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 For sure. Um, let's kind of move on away from the Knicks because we know what their, uh, goals are here. Uh, Atlanta, I am a little bit less clear on what their goals are. My guess would be to try and, uh, I guess just acquire long-term value in some way, either be it by, uh, taking on long-term money to acquire assets. a la the trade that we just talked about. Or is it, you know, just try and do, do small things like Dwayne Dedman for a second round pick. And, uh, maybe you can move Alex Len and Alex Len is actually turned into a semi valuable rotational big. And, you know, you're, you're just trying to fill out around the guys that you consider your core, which is Trey Young, Kevin Herter, John Collins. I don't know that I would consider Torian Prince a part of that core, but I do like Torian Prince and think he's valuable. Yeah, I think the core is those three guys you mentioned. Prince is just outside. I think that they would look to move Prince if they could, just because I don't know if they're going to be able to pay him long term with the rest of their core pieces. And he doesn't really fit ideally. If he was a better defensive player at the three, that's exactly what they need. They need like a DeAndre Hunter type who can just come in, defend, you know, four positions and they could really help cover up for for Trey there. So if Prince was that kind of player, I could see them investing long term. But I do think they're going to look to trade anybody outside of their core three. So Kent Bazemore, Jeremy Lin, they got the right deal. Dwayne Dedman's obvious. You just go down the list. A lot of these guys, even like DeAndre Bembry, I think they would look to move. Amari Spellman, who knows? I don't think he's part of their core necessarily as far as the hierarchy. But maybe he's he's probably ahead of guys like Torian Prince at this point just because of the current regime selected Amari Spellman. So I, I do think that they're going to be looking to be players, and they're definitely sellers to me. It just comes down to can they find the right returning piece. I agree it's going to be more they're looking for draft capital. They're looking for long-term prospects that can, they can add to their core and that fit with their core. I would, uh, I, I would not consider Amari Spellman above, <laughs> uh, maybe even above Justin Anderson in this rotation. No, I'm kidding. Um, I would not consider him above Torian Prince in, in that core. If I was running I think they odds, did, but I do understand what you're saying there. Um, the next team here we should talk about is Chicago. Uh, Chicago is going to be doing everything it can to move Robin Lopez. It seems like uh, they're probably going to try and move Jabari Parker's money. Do you see any takers for those guys, especially now? Like to me, you and I talked about the Rockets potential deal uh, on the last podcast. It seems like their signing of Kenneth Fareed has precluded that. Yeah, it, it really does. I don't see a lot of interest. This is another one of those things where if a team's taking on Jabari or Robin Lopez, for the most part, considering the, the financial input there, so Robin makes just over like $14.4 million, they're probably going to want some asset attached. And the Bulls are just not in a situation where they're going to attach like a second-round pick, a, a Obviously, they're not attaching first. Probably even like Chandler Hutchinson's off the table. There's just not a lot of pieces they can really incentivize teams to take these contracts with. Like they're not probably going to trade Chris Dunn. Who the hell knows what Chris Dunn's value is anyway? Like their core pieces are, are pretty clear. It's Larry Market and Wendell Carter. They're not trading them. Um, but everybody else, they don't really have that much value. Like they're going to keep Levine because they probably value Levine more than I do. But if they're going to make a significant move, I think it would probably have to involve him. There's no way that San Antonio looks at like robin lopez is someone who could really help them right i mean they could <laughs> I, like I guess. he actually kind of would but like i mean in terms of like giving up an asset for them i don't think so no i, I don't think it's going to be to that level it's like yes teams would be interested in robin lopez i think a lot of teams would if he reached the buyout market for example right like, that would be very alluring but you're not trading anything for robin lopez really that's that valuable could philly do it oh man like philly- i mean philly needs wings <laughs> Well, Philly needs wings and they need a backup center. Like, I do think that they need both, realistically. Um, I mean, like, Philly does have a 
pretty reasonable cache of second rounders left over, if I remember correctly, right? Like um, they have uh, the Bucks second rounder in 2019 or Sacramento's. Um, they have the Bulls second rounder in 2019. They have the Nets second rounder in 2020, the Knicks second rounder in 2020, uh, the Mavericks second rounder in 2020, uh, the Knicks second rounder in 2021. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Detroit's second rounder in 2021, Denver's second rounder in 2021, and uh, the Pistons' second rounder in 2023. I mean, like, if they gave up one of those picks for Robin Lopez, I probably would not, like, kill them. Like, I would say, okay, that makes sense. But they just don't, like, unless they were moving Wilson Chandler for him, they don't have the salary matching to be able to do it. Exactly. And I just don't, like, it just creates another hole for them, I feel like, to do so. Yeah, and I would not move Wilson Chandler for Robin Lopez. They need someone like Chandler, I think. He's not the player that he's touted to be sometimes, but I mean, I would rather have Wilson Chandler for their team than Robin Lopez. Just more versatility. They're not trading Redick. They absolutely cannot do that. Um you're exactly right with the contracts. Like, how do they make that work? I mean, you can aggregate and maybe get close. It doesn't even look like they can do that credibly. <laughs> so I, I think if Philly is like purely a buyout team, unless they really find a deal that moves the needle, then I think they would incorporate Wilson Chandler. But I do not think that Robin Lopez is that guy. So like, so like Wilson Chandler has not been very good for Philly. So could you do no. like Wilson Chandler and, uh, well, Wilson Chandler and a second for Robin Lopez and Wayne Selden? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess, I mean, in theory, of course, you could. Uh, I don't know if, if Wayne Selden's moving the needle at all for them as a rotation piece. It comes down to their evaluation again of them. But I, I still think I would hang on to Wilson Chandler in that setting, even though I agree he's not as good. But they need someone that can play like the four and just give them a yeah. little bit more lineup versatility. So I would still favor that. For sure. I think that I agree with you. Uh, it's hard for them. So like, it's hard for me to find a home for Robin Lopez. It's obviously really hard to find a home for Jabari Parker. Uh, the trade that was floated was like Ines Cantor or Ennis Cantor for Jabari Parker. Um, sure. If, if you want to do that, sure, I guess. Um, <laughs> like maybe they move Rob or they buy out Robin Lopez and they just need someone to eat minutes at center because uh, they don't trust Wendell Carter for whatever ungodly reason uh and he's sure he's out yeah well he's out for a little while too yeah that's right um yeah because what he has the thumb injury correct yeah i think left thumb they said six to eight weeks or something like to that capacity so i think he's probably gonna be done for the year there's no point in really bringing him back well yeah i mean it's not like boyle and trust him anyway so um (laughs) and it's not like they have multiple guys to eat center minutes and bobby portis and larry markinen and cristiano felicio anyway let's 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 get an s or ennis canter that makes sense um sure sure uh it's hard to find a set of moves for them that makes sense unless they really just don't want to pay Bobby Portis, which it seems like from the outside that they do. Um, if it was me, I would probably be trying to move him, but I guess that they're not. Yeah, he's the one guy that kind of makes a little bit of sense here. I, I, I don't know what the valuation is going to be, like what they're going to get back that would be more valuable maybe than they perceive Bobby Portis to be, but obviously restricted free agency rights at the end of this year, so there is some incentive to deal him. Some teams could use him, honestly, as a third scoring big. Uh, I, the Bulls could use him as a third scoring big long term. I mean, he's, he's kind of nice to fit around marketing i'm not really high on portis but you can make an argument that he can at least fill that scoring third big role like he can put the ball in the basket maybe that's valuable to some teams but it's i don't think it's that new first round pick it's going to be more of a second rounder ancillary pieces is that enough to move the needle for the bulls yeah maybe like portland like could portland do something with that 
Yeah, they could. I mean, they're getting really good minutes. I mean, Nurkic has been awesome this year with Zach Collins, the backup five. So I think they're okay. Again, we've always talked about Portland. They need they need wings. They need guys who right. can defend on the wing. So like everybody needs that, of course. That's why I mean nobody's breaking down the gates here for Bobby Portis. So I've got a so that those are our sellers basically, right? And we should talk about Memphis now. And I think that this is where we can kind of transition into Memphis and Dallas as well. Um, this is where we can transition into like our player portion of the proceedings. Uh, Marcus Gasol to me is the like reasonable name that makes the most like the most reasonable, very high profile name that makes the most sense to be dealt. Would you agree with that? I would. I mean, in theory, because when you talk about Memphis, you have to kind of separate what you would do versus what they have traditionally done, which is they're always trying to compete, even though they are six games out of the eighth spot in the last column. Like you said, they're one only one of their last 10 games. Uh, this team's always trying to put the best possible team on the floor. Will they actually move Marcus Soul? I'm very curious, like, what is the possible return for him? Like, in your mind, do any trades make sense for Memphis? So they have lost, I just want to put a number on it. They've lost, I think it's 19 of their last 23 or 22 games, 23 games, something Holy in that shit. range. Uh, it's, it's been ugly there. Um, I mean, what do you get for Marcus all? That's a great question because you have to find a team that is willing to take Marcus all. Um, San Antonio makes a lot of sense to me uh, as that team. Like, I, I think that. You reunite the Gasol brothers. Uh, they could actually use minutes at center. Uh, that actually has value to me. And, like, look, we can talk about, like, LaMarcus Aldridge should be playing center, but they would be happy to move him to the four uh, to accommodate Marcus All. So, like, what on San Antonio's roster is valuable to you? Because I am not moving Derek White for him. That's where I was going. <laughs> I, uh, that's, yeah, good. I mean, like, is it Lonnie Walker? Like, I probably personally, like, would you, that's a good question. Would you move Lonnie Walker for Marcus Gasol? If I was the Spurs, I think I would. I, I don't know. That's really hard because I, they're not going to win the title this year. The Spurs aren't. But they're going to try to put the most competitive team possible on the floor in the playoffs. It's kind of interesting with Gasol in that mix. It gives you a better chance to win now. What is that really worth? It comes down to your valuation of Lonnie Walker. I don't feel as confidently about him as I do a guy like Derek White. Like, I would not trade Derek White for Marcus Gasol because Marcus Gasol is a player option after this season. He could just opt out, and you wouldn't get any return. I think Derek White's going to be, like, a legitimate starter in the NBA. But, like, if you're Memphis, you're trading Marcus Gasol. Like, who... Like, you have to get something back for him. You're not just going to trade him to trade him. So what on this roster really... I mean, they can amass salaries, like include Pau Gasol, for example. Maybe Patty Mills is a backup point guard long-term, even though he's got a lot of money on the books. Well, but you're gonna have isn't, to get it, isn't it Lonnie Walker, Rudy, and uh, Davis Burton's is probably the smartest move, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's actually a fair deal, honestly. It's enough to move the needle maybe a little bit. Maybe they attach a pick or something like that. You just have to save face if you're Memphis, too. You can't just move Gasol, who's been a cornerstone and a fixture of your team for an expiring contract, plus... I mean, I don't even know if Lonnie Walker moves the needle. It's very tough. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> what, what if you did uh, Otto Porter for Marcus Gasol? I would do that. If I was Memphis, I would do that. Honestly, I think that's the kind of deal where they how, – how long have they needed a player like Otto Porter? Like, oh, no, no, no. If I was Memphis, I would do that. If I was Washington, I would never do that. But that seems like oh, the me. kind of dumb move that Washington would do. Oh, 100%. And that, that's why they're another one of these – fickle teams like they're, they're not really a seller or a buyer you don't really know what they're gonna do but you can definitely talk yourself into them doing something like this um man like it's 
Like, could the Hornets do this? Could the Hornets do something with Marcus Gasol? You are just going after the desperate teams here. Um. <laughs> I am, yeah, because like I think that that's that's what you do. Because if you look at all of the you know teams that I are agree. competing right now, like Golden State is not going to pay a premium for a center when they just got Demarcus Cousins back. Toronto, oh, I don't no. think is going to pay a premium for Mark, but although you can maybe make a case for them. Um, Actually, I think you can make a pretty reasonable case for them. We'll get to them in a second. Um, Indiana set at center. I would think Denver doesn't need a backup behind Jokic because uh, Plumlee has been pretty good this year off the bench. Milwaukee has Brooke. They have a lot of different younger options that they can throw out there. Boston has Horford and Aaron Baines. They're going to be happy. Philly is not getting Gasol for a backup to back up Joel Embiid. Um Portland has Nurkic and Collins. Oklahoma City has Adams, and they're going to hope to get Nerlens Noel back at some point soon. I mean, like maybe Houston is another one, but like maybe Houston, Toronto, and San Antonio are the three. San Antonio was the one that stuck out to me initially. That was the pretty clear avenue. I mean, going back to the Hornets really quick, can they really field a competitive offer? Like they can do Michael Kidd, Gilchrist, and if they attach Malik Monk, I think that might be interesting they're not going to yeah. probably include miles bridges or a future pick maybe they will i don't know <laughs> it, who knows with michael jordan but they can maybe feel something competitive i don't just look around maybe kind of a sleeper i mean they're not really a sleeper because they're like the best team in the east but the bucks long term if they're like i mean lopez has been really good for them this year as far as his role but gasol is i think just a better player and right if he's gonna yeah. chuck like Casole, I think, can fill that three-point shooting role, and he can give you added value as a passer and stuff. So maybe they look at that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. I just think that I would still say no to that because we've never really seen Mark as like a super, super high-volume three-point shooter. Like he takes four a game right now. I guess he wouldn't yeah. have that issue kind of fitting into that scheme, probably right. I don't think so. I think he's, a, I mean, they basically drop coverage. They play the percentages, yeah, so they encourage they those do. mid-range pull-ups. And, and, and Mark is, like, one of the best I've ever seen at that. Like, he, he's not explosive, but, like, he's so good with his positioning and pick and roll. I think it would actually be an interesting fit if they didn't want to pay um, Lopez long-term. And, of course, there's not, like, a commitment there. He's expiring. But if maybe if they wanted to lock Gasol up, if they think he was going to, maybe he accepts his player option for next year, and, and they view that as kind of a move piece. They have some contracts they could aggregate. The easiest one would be George Hill, even though that adds to their playoff depth. I don't know if they want to do that. Tony Snell is another guy to look at. Urson, they could put together an interesting offer, but do they have enough of the ancillary guys? Like DJ Wilson's interesting, Sterling Brown's interesting. Do they move the needle for Memphis? I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, Brogdon, that, that's a good question. Like, well, they're not moving Brogdon. Um, I don't think so. Like the, the problem with Milwaukee is they the best way to do it is George Hill, and George Hill can't be traded until deadline day, uh, at least aggregated in a package before deadline yes. day. So. George Hill and DJ Wilson and like Sterling Brown, I think is a pretty interesting package for Memphis, but and like, maybe we'll say like a pick of some sort, like a second or something. Um, that's a pretty interesting package for Memphis, but I think they run the risk of just getting beaten to the punch. Oh, a hundred percent. They do. And that's not like the best offer available. And honestly, it would knock them in the playoffs a little bit just because what has made Milwaukee special this year, I think is they have, for the first time, legitimate playoff caliber depth. We talked about this in the past. Yep. So yep. Brown and Wilson, those guys are important for them. So they, they probably wouldn't move both. Maybe they don't even view the center position as that important. It's just kind of an interesting roster fit. I think Gasol would fit really well with those guys, but I, I don't know if they have the pieces to really make it work. And Toronto, I think, again, is like an interesting team here. If they would be willing, like 
would Memphis take on Serge Ibaka? That's really interesting. Would Toronto trade Serge Ibaka for Marcus Sol right now? Considering the Ibaka we're getting this year, who has been better, I think, in multiple respects than last year. Like I, that's Ibaka's really been good this year. Like just full yes. stop, he's been pretty good this year. Uh, again, Mark is better than Serge. Um, they could be thinking of it as an upgrade, but I don't think it's a big enough upgrade. Uh, like I don't think that the um, Grizzlies would want to take Jonas unless they're getting something really valuable coming back. Like, is it Jonas and shit? Like, if, if you're putting Jonas <laughs> in that deal, like, it almost has to be Ananobi, I think, to make it work. Yeah, and he's kind of taking a little bit of a backseat this year, honestly. So I, I don't know if Toronto does that, though. They're probably not viewing that as much of an upgrade. Yeah, um, I would slight. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't either. So, like, I, I just wouldn't, wouldn't view it that way. So then, like, what, we're down again to... Um, <laughs> Yeah, we're we're down again to San Antonio. So yeah, it's 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 a hard one. Like Brook, like could you say like Brooklyn? But I wouldn't want to reduce Jared Allen's minutes. No, I, I don't know what. So, I mean, it obviously improves your roster, but what is the goal for them? It's more long term based. Yeah, like there are realistic offers out there though for Mark that I think you could reasonably make sense of. Sure. Um, Nikola Vucevic is another interesting name, if only because he's expiring. I don't think Orlando moves him, if only because I think they legit want to try and make the playoffs. That's exactly what my thought process was. That's why I don't have them as a seller, just because they're in that gray area where they're close enough to the playoffs being three games out of the loss column, and they're trying to win. They have Steve Clifford. Like, Steve Clifford is not going to try to lose. So, and, and Vucevic is absolutely paramount to what they do. Um, he's probably been their best player this year. So, uh, it, it would have to take, like, a really heavy offer for them to, to budge on that. I don't even know what they'd be looking for, frankly. But it's hard to do that when you have an expiring contract. Like, you're just you're not going to get the value that you think you are with Vucevic on an expiring contract. So Dennis Smith is the next name I have here. I think we have to talk about him, if only just because it's a weird spot that he's in, uh, in Dallas. You and I have talked about like the fact that we actually like the fit between those two. Um, I understand the numbers from the early season, like swan dive of those two playing together aren't very good. But if you've watched them before Dennis started to sit out, like I thought that they, over those 10 games, had kind of figured some things out. I did too. On the floor, it looked like Dennis was, you know, amenable to being the second guy, and he was playing off the ball. He was letting Luca initiate the offense, kind of everything you'd want. And Defending, then all the like stuff he was comes doing out. A about lot. He was. He was kind of filling that role that you, he was maximizing his effort on the defensive end for sure, which he's a, a tremendous athlete. So he can, when he's engaged, he can really cut off penetration. When he tries, he's always been pretty good getting steals, honestly. So he was kind of filling the role and like making winning plays, which he did not do his rookie year. And it was like, okay, this might be workable. It's not. It's not optimal. Like he optimally, you'd want a better decision maker. You want like Trey Jones if he could shoot next to Luca. I think that's the ideal point guard fit. But Dennis was making it work. And then you hear all these reports about him not being satisfied in the role and whatever the hell's going on there. So, <laughs> I mean, they're not going to give him away. That's the thing that people. I, I posted something about him and like Aaron Gordon, for example. Like we talked about in the podcast, and people were like, they're not going to get value for him. And Mass fans were kind of worried about trading him and not getting anything in return. It's like the Mavericks aren't going to move Dennis Smith unless they get something back that's legitimate. If not, they're just going to keep him. So I've been trying to find a way to get like Dennis to Detroit because I like the idea of just like him being in Detroit. Uh, they need a point guard badly, and I think they would just kind of let the shackles off a little bit. Would you do, if you were both teams, Luke Kennard for Dennis Smith? I would not if I was Dallas. I don't think that highly of Kennard. Like, I think he's he was better his rookie year, honestly, than mm -hmm. I anticipated. But I'm not sure if that's the kind of trade. Because if I'm trading Dennis, I want something 
around Luka long-term that's optimized. And I don't know if Kennard's a good enough defensive player. Um, he's a great shooter, and he's really smart. I, I don't know if that's quite enough. Yeah, I think that I am on your side there. So the next one would be Orlando. Say that you can't get um, Aaron Gordon. Is there a guy that makes more sense or makes some semblance of sense there? Because I'm struggling to find it. I mean, I don't think the Magic are going to trade Isaac. So if they were, that that would be a guy I would look at. Um, even though I think that Isaac has more flaws than maybe he gets credit for. Like, I'm really concerned about the three-point shot at this juncture ever translating to a high level. But if you think that Isaac can shoot, I mean, that's an incredible fit next to Luka. But again, the current Magic regime selected him number six. I don't think they're going to move him. Do you see any other team out there? I mean, like Phoenix it has a hole at point guard, but I don't know that I like that fit in terms I of don't. just scheme. Um, yeah, like it's just hard to find that one team. You know, it's just really hard to look around. Like maybe, maybe Chicago, like could Chicago try and like take a second draft whirl at Dennis Smith? And maybe it's like, <laughs> maybe it's Bobby Portis for Dennis Smith. <laughs> good god if, if dallas did that that'd be really really interesting I, I think chicago is definitely a name to bring up i if the price was right i think they would take a gamble here just because i don't i think it's pretty clear that dunn just doesn't have the decision making of course dennis has very big issues here too but i think dennis is the better shooter there's more upside with him on offense so it's just about again about crafting a deal that makes sense what is the return obviously dallas would love to have wendell carter i don't think that's possible here um but i would make yeah. that offer if i was dallas i would definitely call the bulls and be like i'll trade you dennis for wendell carter um but i don't think it's gonna go down yeah we talked about that would you trade dennis in a first for wendell carter um i just don't think dallas should be giving up more firsts and i don't think that uh i, I don't know that chicago does that it would have to be a situation where maybe dallas is taking back some bad and they include Wes Matthews in it. So maybe they take back, you know, Felicio and two more years owed to him or something and, and trade the Bulls and expiring. You could kind of finagle it to maybe the Bulls would be like, okay, even though they don't like free agency and they build strictly through the draft, I guess in theory you could convince them to do that. And that would supplement the lack of an extra first round pick is like you're giving them cap relief, but the Bulls don't seem really enamored with cap relief. The guy who I think should be most likely to move is Noah Vonley. Um, I, I would not understand why the Knicks would keep him, if only because. So they just straight up don't have, they have non-bird rights on him, right? If they want to give him money, they can just trade him and then sign him in the offseason again, right? Like if, if they've decided no for whatever reason, and Noah Vonley is really good, I think. Why wouldn't you trade him, get an asset, and then just bring him back? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's not really a lot of utility you're getting out of him right now, other than, you know, his lower cap hold. That's something, but again, like you noted, non-bird rights, and they're going to try to maximize that space for, you know, a max contract guy. So if they can get, I don't know if you can get a first for him, but I think you can get a pretty good second round for, pick for him. He's been really good this year. Yeah, like if I'm Philly, I am giving up, like maybe, I might give New York back one of their seconds at least to get him, and like maybe even like a later second that I have dealt. I think that's fair. Honestly, you could convince yourself of that pretty easily because they have like a billion picks, like you already noted, with all the hinky trades. Yeah, he's been Noah Vonley has been one of the sneaky, like really, really good players this year. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on trade wise? Have I have I missed anyone here that we wanted to talk about? It's going to go really quick. We've touched on these two teams briefly, but I would watch Washington. They're another one of those fickle teams, kind of like Memphis and Dallas, where they could get involved and they have some interesting pieces. I love Thomas Sadoransky. I think he could help a lot of teams. I think he's a really good. 
Um, I would be looking to acquire him again if I was Memphis and I could make that Gasol maybe for Porter and like Sadoransky move. I would do that because Sadoransky, of course, he has restricted rights after this season, so there is some value in acquiring him. I just think he's a really nice piece. I love him on Dallas next to Luca. I think that's another good fit. Who knows what the hell Washington is going to do? That's just a team to watch because they have luxury tax concerns. They always seem kind of undecided about how exactly they want to attack things so maybe an aggressive move for them and of course the pelicans are a team that we have to discuss really quickly as far as one of the buyers in this market you can kind of pinpoint them just because they have such a strict timetable obviously anthony davis being out might change some things but they're gonna have to at least put some effort in to say that they did and i I just don't know what kind of move is available to them we've heard miritich being shopped i think they need miritich frankly that's the thing about their top echelon guys is like they need all of them. <laughs> you know, you can't just trade somebody without getting anybody that's going to help you back because they don't have that kind of depth, right? So maybe a team like Washington, for example, you include like a Julius Randle. You can finagle a deal potentially for an auto porter type again, but I don't know if they have the contracts to match. That's really tough with Solomon Hill. Who wants to take him on? Etuan Moore. It's just a, a team we clearly have to watch because they, there's a lot of incentive for them to make a short-term deal. With Washington, the differing incentives here uh, in terms of what they're trying to do are going to be really interesting because uh, on one hand, Ted Leonsis has been very strong that they want to compete. On the other hand, I cannot see a circumstance where they're going to pay luxury tax on this team. Like, I, They're going to try and do, I think, whatever they can to get below that tax line. Right now, they're yeah. about $6 million over that tax line. The easiest way to get below it would be to trade Markeith Morris's $8.6 million. Um Another way to do it would be to maybe like piecemeal it where you trade Trevor Ariza for a number that's like slightly lower than Trevor Ariza's number at 15 million. Um, And then just kind of like make it work that way. Like then you move Sam Decker, you move uh, maybe like a couple of the other guys there. They've been working their ass off to try and stay at 13 (laughs) guys uh, this season to make that work. Uh, (laughs) We'll see if that ends up happening, but then you throw in the fact that they're trying to compete and trying to maybe add pieces for God knows what reason. It's just going to be really interesting to see the way that dynamic plays out. And I wouldn't totally rule out Mahimni being traded, attaching like a first rounder in the future. Honestly, I think that might be possible just because it's really going to help them. And if they're going to get off that contract, they're going to have to attach something legitimate. And you- you look at the rest of the roster, like they're probably not going to attach Troy Brown just because teams rarely do that with their high pedigree picks. So that's something else to look for. A team like Atlanta, again, they don't need any centers. They have a ton of centers. But if they got an extra pick, I think you could see a team try to finagle that and try to get that opportunity to acquire that pick. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like the easiest trade candidate here is Trevor Ariza. I just don't know if they're going to move him again. Okay, so breaking news here. Um, I don't know if you saw this tweet from Woj because we've been talking about this, but for the first time, Memphis will begin listening to trade offers on franchise stars Marcus Soul and Mike Conley. Memphis has reached a crossroads and is preparing to weigh deals involving one or both of its cornerstone veterans. Story soon on ESPN. So that is interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like we talked about, there are actually a lot of really potentially interesting deals out there for Mark. You can make a case for being workable, right? Absolutely. What about Mike Conley, though, really quick? Like, what, 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 do, you, what do you think about him? Because he can really help teams. He's good. Yeah, Mike Conley, I think, should... Man, like, I want Mike Conley to make the All-Star team this year. Like, I don't know if, like, he should necessarily. I, I, like, they're just... It's so deep in the West. I think you can make a lot of different cases for a lot of players. But fuck, man. Like, I want him on the All-Star team. He, I think, deserves it, at the very least. Um... Man, like what teams for Mike Conley? I mean, 
it's again it's hard because a lot of the contending teams have points like milwaukee they have eric bledsoe toronto has kyle lowry golden state no denver has jamal murray i mean like maybe denver would make sense yeah that's interesting um i I think that they're probably going to keep their ecosystem but they they might entertain it philly is the most interesting for me but they they can't pay all these guys that's the thing is like you can't pay jimmy butler mike conley ben simmons and joel Embiid the max this is not feasible but here's a wild one would you trade jimmy butler for mike conley (laughs) that's pretty good man (sighs) i might if I was Philly, just with the the issues that Butler has caused there and the certainty of getting two more years on Conley's deal, because we can assume he's not going to terminate his option as last year. That's really interesting because they need somebody who can guard smalls. And, you know, Conley's a better fit as far as a shooter who can initiate the offense. That's really interesting. I don't think I would if only because Butler's cap hit should be, if I remember correctly, a bit lower and allows them to have maneuverability in terms of yes. uh, signing another player in addition to Jimmy. So I don't think I would do that, but it's yeah. interesting at least. Um, if they just don't like the fit with Jimmy Butler at all already. Uh, to me, like Denver actually does ring a bell here because he would fit really well with Jokic. He would fit really well with all of their young players. He's considered around the league as like a great dude. So I don't think you would have to worry yeah. about upsetting the ecosystem. Um, they have the young pieces that are pretty interesting, Jamal Murray could pretty easily move off ball and then take some on ball minutes is the backup point guard. Whenever Mike sits, um, that's actually, that's a team that makes a lot of sense to me. The more I think about it. Yeah. It's just for me. It's if you're Memphis, cause they have to get something for Conley. Like this is different than Gasol. I think like Conley's legitimately like a like sub elite for his position right now. So you have to get something of real value. So are we talking about Gary Harris? Like, in theory, I don't think Denver's trading Jamal Murray, so we'll leave him out. But Michael Porter Jr., they have pieces and they have picks, but what is enough for you if you're Memphis? So definitely has to involve Porter if Memphis wants Porter. Yeah. I think Wancho is good. So, like, I would move Wancho here, too. So it's yes. like Michael Porter, Wancho, that gets you five. Mason Plumley and Will Barton. Bring Will Barton back yeah. to Memphis. <laughs> there you go. Um, it's definitely a competitive offer. I think that was smart to point out because I think Met, I think Denver could talk themselves into maybe Connolly. We're at the point where he moves the needle. He takes us from, you know, we've always been great this year, but maybe he pushes us just high enough to where we feel like we can better compete with Golden State. Oklahoma City, I'm still saying no. Um, man, I just don't think Philly has the money to do it. Um, yes. Portland's a no. Houston's a no. San Antonio? That's that's what I was looking at again. I mean, you could really tog yourself into that fit. Yeah, you really could. Like San Antonio makes a lot of sense. Do you move Derek White for him if you're San Antonio? I would. Um, I, I would have no problem I, moving Derek White for him. I would too. I don't know if they have enough. I, I'll be honest. I just don't know that they have enough to do it. Because like, to me, the Denver offer is better than what San Antonio can give. Yes. If, if Denver's willing to do that, absolutely. I think that they can feel a better, more competitive offer. We can't write off teams. Like, I don't know if Dallas has the pieces, but I mean, what if Memphis just invests in Dennis Smith as their young point guard and you kind of finagle? I, I don't think they're going to have enough. But like the Suns could get involved. You can see teams that don't necessarily have the same timeline. Like Conley fits really well next to Devin Booker. I mean, that's the kind yeah, of defender. Does. So like they could probably talk themselves into something like that. And they would the assets to do it so those teams i think would get involved in this too potentially so that's just something to look for utah so utah next to donovan mitchell is another really great one but i don't know if they have the pieces so like with phoenix you're probably talking uh what mikhail bridges tj warren 
And then like you have to move the Ryan Anderson deal, right? Just because that has to be involved yeah. for salary matching. Yeah, but just competitive. I mean, that's at least a formidable throw, offer for him. You could throw Ubre in too if you don't want to pay Ubre. Well, and if I mean, if Memphis loves Josh Jackson, he would be he could be involved in that too. I don't think that he's right. off limits by any means. I think the only no, two untouchables not. are Booker, Booker and Aiton. Like everybody yeah. else, I think is available here. Plus picks. Like I, I don't know. If, I mean, it depends on what the pick protection is. Of course, if we're talking about future picks, but. Yeah, I, they can feel a competitive offer. I think that you can look at a team like Phoenix to get involved. There's a lot of teams, I think. Th- this is different from Marcus Gasol. Like, Gasol, there's only a handful of teams. Conley's good enough to where I think a lot of teams could talk themselves into this. Okay, la- last one here that I'm going to give you. If you're Orlando, Aaron Gordon <laughs> for Mike Conley. Oh, man. I think I would do that if I was Orlando, just because he, like, Conley will improve Isaac. And stuff like that. Like, he helps your younger players. Like, they need an initiator so bad. I mean, Augustine's been okay this year. He's been actually better than most of the lower-key point guards, like like Chris Dunn, for example. But I, I would I would probably do that. I think that you're getting value for Eric, for Aaron Gordon. You're putting your young players in a better position to succeed. Is there any other one that, like, really makes sense to you? I already mentioned Utah. I, it's just, if I was them... And I was looking at it and say, we got really close last year. I mean, not like super, super close, but we beat Oklahoma City, went to the second round. We had no secondary creation next to Donovan Mitchell on the perimeter. That would be a really interesting fit next to him because I don't think Donovan is a natural lead guard. I think that Connolly would really help him in a lot of different ways. And they could field some competitive offers, like including Rubio. I just don't know if they have the young pieces to get that done. So it basically has to be Rubio, Exum, Grayson Allen, and like at least one, maybe two picks. Yeah, and I, if I was Utah, I would I would think about that. I mean, that's the kind of deal where that puts you in the top four teams in the West, in my opinion. If you get Conley and you add him to that core, Exum's really interesting. I think that was the piece that I overlooked. That that would be a fascinating fit um, on Memphis. Maybe they could talk themselves into that. Yeah, yeah. It would be an investment on behalf of the Grizzlies, wouldn't you say? Yes, it would. Well, here's the other thing. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you Buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy or the basketball teams. It's a non-intimidating way for the stock market newcomers around the world to invest for the first time with true confidence. Uh, It's simple and intuitive. There's a clear design, and it has data presented in an easy-to-digest way. I really can't emphasize that part enough. Uh, The charts are just so easy to understand. The market data uh, is great. You can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone uh you know you could look at collections like the most popular uh the most popular sectors the most popular stocks entertainment stocks social media stocks uh you can just learn by doing you learn how to invest as you build your portfolio uh you discover new stocks you trade or you track your favorite companies with personalized news feeds there are custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest and best of all there's no cost or commission fees uh, uh, other brokerages are going to charge you $10 or potentially $10 for every trade. But Robinhood, uh, they don't charge commission fees. You trade stocks and you keep all of your profits. It really is like I can't emphasize it enough. Robinhood is absolutely spectacular. Uh, look, Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at gametheory.robinhood.com. That's gametheory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, dot Robinhood. R-O-B-I-N 
H-O-O-D.com. Uh, go to gametheory.robinhood.com and you're going to get that uh, free stock like Apple, Ford, Sprint, whatever you're looking for. So go to Robinhood uh, and learn how to invest with Robinhood. Let's talk about uh, the NBA draft a little bit because that's what we do on this podcast. We talk about the NBA draft. Uh, let's start with Duke, Virginia. To me, the most interesting takeaway of Duke, Virginia was that DeAndre Hunter just keeps balling out against really, really good teams. Uh, There's another one that I want to bring up as well, but I, I think that that's where I would start. I think that's fair, honestly. Like He held his own in a lot of the matchups. I didn't think we got enough of RJ Hunter, at least not as much as I wanted, because Hunter, of course, has to check Zion as well. And just what Hunter had to do offensively, the way that Virginia attacked Duke predominantly was targeting Marcus Bolden on switches. So whoever had him, Ty Jerome, Hunter at times. I thought a lot of Hunter's baskets, or at least some of them came on closeouts against Bolden. So I'm not sure exactly what to do with that. But my main takeaway from just a specific play that happened in that game was early in the game when Hunter took that baseline catch, that catch and go, quick rip through on Cam Reddish, got to the rim and really exploded over the top. I think it was Jack White dunked it. Like Hunter is very inconsistent with how he jumps around the basket as a finisher. Like when he's more mid post isolation, when he tries to get to the rim, he's not overly explosive in traffic. You see him miss some, but that big space attack where he had momentum and he really loaded up. I think that's big for his projection. If he can really finish that way and be explosive around the rim off to in very projectable situations, he's going to be mostly an off ball player at the NBA level. Um, but if he can attack a closeout with that kind of veracity, I think that that is what you're looking for from him. I agree with all that. I don't really know that I need to add anything to it. So the next guy I want to mention is RJ Barrett. Uh, RJ Barrett dropped 30 on a Virginia team whose defense is basically tailor-made to make life difficult for someone like RJ Barrett. That was extraordinarily impressive to me. And look, he only made one of six from three. Uh, He was not an awesome jump shooter in this game, but it said a lot to me that he got basically wherever he wanted against a pack line defense, uh, which again, the goal of the pack line defense is essentially to dissuade perimeter, uh, middle penetration. And he just got it whenever he wanted. He used the long strides. He used just that power. And, and like, you can talk about it being bully ball to an extent, but you know what? Like he bullied what is t- the biggest defensive bully in college basketball. Like that kind of says a lot to me. So yeah, you definitely saw a lot of power game from RJ. Like he did use that shoulder drop to create separation. He even dislodged Hunter once there. That was kind of impressive. Moved him. He killed Ty Jerome at times, uh, either via his power or even via quickness. Like Ty Jerome was trying to slide with him. He slid the initial time, but then he couldn't stick with him. That second slide got beat that way. So RJ definitely got to where he needed to get to. I still want to see him. I wanted to see him be defended by Hunter more in isolation because I felt like a lot of even the non-finishing plays, I don't think that RJ ever got the corner on Hunter, which is not something to be like dissuaded about completely because I think Hunter's honestly one of the best perimeter defenders in the country, if not the best. But that's the matchup I wanted to see a little bit more of. But you can't critique. I wasn't killing RJ after this game. You you got the, the first floaters he does pretty consistently in every game where he has like a triple team and he'll just throw it up instead of driving kick. You can pick out things, but the guy just produces. He's produced basically every stage of this of the season. It's hard to really pick apart, you know, beating a defense like that and being that kind of score against that caliber of opponent. Yeah, and you know what? Like he's not the world's best defender, but he's a pretty good defender. Uh he's not a willing passer, but when he wants to be he's a pretty good passer. Um I don't know, like 
I'm going to be really interested to see how he kind of fits and meshes within NBA locker rooms, if only because I think NBA teams and NBA players will get very frustrated playing with him at times. But the talent to me, like he's still pretty clearly the number two pick uh, just based off of talent. Now, uh, is he so overwhelming the number two pick that you don't consider the other factors? No, I don't think that's the case. But in terms of just what he's done this year, I think he's just been a stud. And I think you get a lot of Wiggins comparisons with him. And oh, no, I don't not, even, not even close to me. Like, that's not RJ's issue to me. It's not about not showing up on a consistent basis and just being kind of an empty shooter when you don't shoot well, you're not engaged, you kind of have this laissez-faire attitude. Like, RJ's problem is, honestly, most of the time is the opposite of that. Yeah. He's too aggressive with his own scoring that he doesn't see these kick-out passes. He's not the most willing passer, but you don't have to worry about the mental approach from a competitive standpoint. So I just want to get that on the record. I don't, I don't agree with that narrative. I think that's cotton got some legs under it, unfortunately. And, and to me, that's not the problem with RJ. That That is, I genuinely don't think you could come up with a worse comparison for two guys that have like similar builds. You know what I mean? Like, I mean like comparing Jack salt to Kia Clark would be a bad comparison, mm-hmm. but like two guys that are six, seven, six, eight relative length, you know, scores. Those two guys are just nothing alike. They really are nothing alike. RJ is consistent kill mode, wants to dominate every single possession. Andrew's happy sitting back and chilling out. Like, you know, that, that uh, those clips with Doris Burke that went around the internet where she kind of killed Andrew Wiggins for just kind of yep. floating around in the second half, you would never see RJ do that. You will never, ever, ever see RJ do that. Yes, exactly right. And I think that that mental approach, that difference is the difference here. Like RJ is wired like an alpha, but he might not be good enough and efficient enough as a scorer to be an alpha. That's my concern with him is like, he just might not be good enough for what he thinks he is on the floor. You want guys historically that are wired that way though. That's what makes him so alluring is because most of the best players in the NBA are competitive as fuck. And RJ is. So that's not the issue. Like Wiggins isn't wired like an alpha. That's his problem. It's like, he's very passive. Um, and it's kind of like, I, I get it from like a general sense where if they're not scoring, what are they really doing for you? Um, from like a, and RJ has been a volume score on like, okay efficiency this year. And he's, uh, we can talk about a situation. We'll probably get to that in, in future podcasts or whatnot, as far as spacing, yeah. all of that. I think he's, he, he could have done a better job this year. I think even you would agree with this distributing and understanding his role in the offense. And the, the fact that he's not the best player in his own team. But, oh, he, he drives me fucking crazy with that. Like, <laughs> yeah, no question. But that's the concern. But that's the concern, though. Let's 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 fix let's fixate on the actual issues when we're projecting guys and not just come up with something like Wiggins where it doesn't really have any value. Like, there's no value in looking at Wiggins and looking at RJ unless you're just going from the pure score standpoint. But that doesn't even really mesh either. Yeah, I agree that that does not hold any water to me, in my opinion. Um, is there anyone else that we want to talk about? Like Zion Zion in this game. He's fucking incredible. Um Cam Reddish had like kind of a sleepy game again. He ends up with nine points, eight rebounds, you know, a couple steals. I don't think he was particularly bad defensively. Like he was pretty solid for them. This game was without Trey Jones. Uh, you know, I think that yep. that, uh, I think Duke performed a lot better offensively without Trey Jones than what I would have ever expected against Virginia. And I think that's worth mentioning, but I mean, I just don't know that there's a, maybe, maybe Ty Jerome we could bring up. Ty Jerome uh, really struggled. I thought with the length that Duke presented and that's an issue for him long term. To me, he's an off guard, not a lead uh, yep. like he plays at Virginia. But I think that, you know, he, he can be a he can be an off guard that knocks down shots off of movement and plays not high level defense, but like capable defense. 
yeah, I think that's we already kind of knew these things about Jerome, but right. playing a team like Duke, Duke is going to bring everything to the surface. I, there's just major athleticism questions with him, in my opinion. Like again, I noted that play with RJ. Like I don't expect him. I, I don't think RJ has like the most nuclear first step or anything like that. He mostly wins on his strides. But like the fact that Jerome just didn't have a shot a lot of the time is is concerning for his defensive value, being able to keep guys in front. But again, we already knew that he's a very smart player, cerebral. Um, has the shooting range, but I agree with you. He's going to be kind of that off-movement shooter, like in a Philadelphia kind of system. One note with Cam Reddish that, again, is something we already know, but the lack of explosiveness sometimes is just, I, I don't understand. Like, some of the cops coming in again. He, this guy got McGrady comparisons. He's not even in the same stratosphere as athlete. But the one play yeah. where it was in the first half, he I think it was being guarded by Braxton Keene. He got the corner on him. So he completely beat him. Huff was on the other side of the paint. So he had a clear avenue to the rim. I think you see a lot of athletes like Nasir Little dunks this easily off two. Reddish doesn't even explode really off two. It ends up getting blocked from behind by Key. I think you see the best athletes, they dunk that ball. And it was really concerning for me. Like you look at that and it's like he, he hasn't had that many dunks this year. He's not explosive around the rim. Uh, the first step isn't there necessarily. I, I think he's one of the safest players in the draft from a projection standpoint if you play him, again, in the Otto Porter role. But if teams think he's like this creator type that can like run, pick, and roll, he doesn't make great decisions on the floor. We haven't seen that this year. His handles look loose at times. So yep. I, I'm just a little bit worried that he's going to get misused, kind of like a Brandon Ingram type. When they're, I mean, Reddish is a better shooter. I believe in his shot more than Ingram's, so he should project better in that role as far as off-ball. But if teams think that this guy is like a point guard because he gets all that hype in, in high school about being a high school point guard, I don't think we've seen that this year. I think that that's a pretty reasonable take. I'll be very interested to see him whenever he has actual space to operate. Sure. Because I think that there is, there's a lot of that there where he just does not have the space to do what he wants to do. Um, we're going to talk about is Nasir Little. Uh, Nasir had his best game of his career last night against Virginia Tech. 23 points, made two threes, six rebounds, three assists. I will say this. A lot of this came in garbage time. A lot of his production came late in this game. Um, he had something, I want to say, like 11 points before he came in for this like last stint. Then he made two threes and uh, got a couple of runouts for dunks. Like it wasn't, uh, it wasn't statistically what the performance says that it was. I watched this game kind of in and out. I was doing something, but he was playing the four for most of this, correct? Is that correct? Uh, that's what I noticed, yes. Okay. So uh, we'll say tentatively, yes, he was. From what I saw, it wasn't like one of those, like, holy shit performances. It was fine. Like, he, it was just, like, my main takeaway, it was just good to see him with some confidence. Like, you, you yes. saw him kind of build up off of the energy. This is a guy who's kind of been, we talked about it, he struggled this year and he struggled to find his place. And it was just good to see him do well. Like, I really like that kid a lot. Like, it's just kind of a gut feeling for me. Like, when I listen to him talk, like, I'm very into him as, as a prospect as far as how he's wired. I love the competitiveness. I think you're going to get 100% of whatever he's got on the floor. I was never that concerned about the shooting, even though you've seen some really bad misses this year, some really hard misses off the backboard. But like watching him in AAU and stuff, I loved his shot for like what he is as a player as far as a wing type like that who has that kind of natural shooting ability. So good to see him make some threes. I don't think he's a 20% three-point shooter like whatever he was before this game. I think he's a better shooter than that. I'm not concerned about the shooting. I'm concerned about the feel. I'm concerned about yep. his ability to understand how to play basketball. And I'm concerned about the body type. Um, to an extent, we talked about maybe what is his optimal strength level as far as maintaining agility. I, I don't know what that is. It seems like some people have postulated that he's actually lost some weight over the course of the season. He looks like he's moving a little bit better to me. But I those are going to be the questions you ask. Yes. Yeah, so those so, are the questions I think you have to ask when you talk about him. So I've talked to a lot of college assistants about 
Nasir, that, that have played Nasir this year. And they kind of agreed with my take that he is a little bit heavy right now. Um, they, they are worried about the feel as well. Like he just hasn't really displayed it so far this season. But yeah, you know, in the last three games, 11 points against Notre Dame in 18 minutes, and he turned that game. He was, I don't know if he was North Carolina's MVP because, you know, like Kobe White dropped 17 in that game and Cam Johnson continued to be super valuable, but yeah, he was the, he was the turning point. He dropped 11 points in the second half. They don't win that game without him. Uh, against Miami, he goes for 12 points, generally plays really, really well. He only played 13 minutes in that game, but it was mostly because of foul trouble. Like he actually played again when he was on the floor. I thought he played really well. And then Virginia Tech last night, every minute he's on the floor, he's making an impact, plays really, really well. So that's three straight games now that he's strung together a really, really strong performance. And that, I think, is what has been missing from him, is maybe the way to put it. He, he hasn't had this str- kind of stretch of games yet against tough competition. Like, we can go back early in the season. You know, he drops 21 on Elon and, you know, drops 19 on St. Francis. Like, he... he performed uh fine in those games but you know there's just no one athletically in those games that can match up with him these are the teams that he really is starting to prove it against virginia tech miami notre dame not a murderer's row of defenses but still more impressive athletes than what we've seen him perform against so far and i think it says a lot that he has really performed up to that standard uh over the last few games Absolutely. And I again, I'm not taking any like hardline takeaways. I still am pretty skeptical in a lot of his game. And this is coming from someone who absolutely loved him at lower levels. Uh, we'll see. I'm not going to overreact to the sample, especially last night. For me, again, the takeaway is just I want to see him with some confidence. I want to see him go out there and we get the full Nasir, like what he's capable of right now in that role. And I think that, you know, building up that confidence, that consistent production is only going to be a positive to kind of bring to the surface what he can do. I just want to see the mentality more consistent, and I think we're starting to get that a little bit. Uh, Before we get into this uh, just disaster of a Defensive Player of the Year uh, list, let's, uh, real quick, Darius Garland, while we were podcasting, announced that he's withdrawing from school to focus on the NBA draft. Um, uh, It's not a surprise, obviously, that he's going to be going forward with the NBA. To me, a potential top 10 pick, almost certainly a lottery pick. Uh, Really, really great pull-up shooter. Developing decision maker, I think, is a passer. But just, uh, just the kind of point guard that the NBA is looking for right now as a playmaker. Agreed. I I mean, he's the best pull-up shooter in the class. He's got that natural distance, that one-motion shot, ultra-quick. He's shifty off the bounce. He can split, pick, and roll. He's got real quickness there. I'm I'm just most concerned about, honestly, the playmaking for others, the passing, the decision-making. Had more turnovers and assists this year. That's been pretty popular. Someone who I don't think was ever developed as a pure point guard, like he came up as kind of an off-guard, if my understanding is correct. And that's kind of what's true, yes. So that concerns me a little bit because if you're – when I'm looking at a high-level point guard prospect, if I'm taking a guy his size who's almost surely going to be a negative defensively at the top of the draft, like ideally you want the combination of scoring and decision-making. So you can really put the ball in the basket, but you can also playmake at a high level. And those guys are a lot rarer than you'd think. So for me, Garland profiles, I'm not saying he's this kind of player, but more like a Jamal Murray type where you leverage his shooting, but he's not really like the primary playmaker. Um, that still has a lot of value. Like Jamal Murray is a very good player. So that's the kind of point guard I think you're getting. But I think that some of the decision-making stuff is, is kind of a concern. So he did, he played off ball a lot uh, and just kind of as a spot-up shooter. Uh, at younger levels. The reason I'm a little bit less concerned about that with him is that his dad is a point guard 
And I think that he's going to continue to learn just from watching tape. He's just, he's just a super mature kid, smart kid. I think he's going to figure it out. I really do. Yeah. And I've heard he has elite level intangibles. So there's a lot of reasons to buy in on him. I just have this, it's, it's a philosophy thing as far as how good you have to be. If you're that size of point guard to invest in at the top of the draft, when you're taking something off the table defensively legitimately. And I think that his size is an issue, his build, even though he did put on some, some strength that looked like at Vanderbilt, yep. he, he definitely has a lure in this class. So if you're drafting for upside, I mean, it's hard to have him outside the top 10. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the last thing we're going to talk about here is this list of defensive player of the year. So the Naismith this year is doing defensive player of the year. Uh, sure. Let's just put that out there. Sure. Um, there are candidates uh, at the midseason, uh, you know, award list that they put out. Barry Brown from Kansas State. Good. Barry Brown's a good defender. Uh, do you have a takeaway on that? No, no. Every game I've watched of Kansas State, going to watch. I think tonight they play Tech. Is that correct? Yes. I think they play Texas Tech tonight. Yeah. So every time I've watched him, he's been a good defender. I have no qualms with that. Uh, next is Brandon Clark. Uh, both of us would probably say Brandon Clark is the winner of this award right now, right? He's won. Yes, he's definitely won for me. Um, next, Taco Fall at UCF. Haven't honestly watched a second of him this year. So this is kind of where we diverge. You cover much more. I mean, you obviously cover the draft in depth, but also college basketball and have a much better contextual understanding of these kinds of players where I'm watching solely for legitimate prospects. So I haven't seen a lot of UCF. (laughs) So UCF this season when Taco falls on the floor versus when he's off the floor plays like right around 20 to 22 minutes a night, if I remember correctly. Um, They're allowing a worse effective field goal percentage against. Uh, they're getting fewer or no, 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 they're, they're right around the same in terms of turnovers. They allow a higher offensive rebounding rate when taco fall is in the game. Uh, the two point percentage, which is what you would think he would impact the most from opposing teams. Uh, teams are shooting 43.5% when he's on the floor versus 45 when he's off the floor. So that was the number that always used to be like a pretty big difference with them. Um, you know, last season, for instance, uh, or no, 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 like last season, for instance, when he was on the floor, uh, UCF gave up 0.87 points per 100 possessions this uh, versus 0.98 when he was off the floor uh this season there's just not a difference there when he's on the floor or off the floor and i get that he's just like this big rim protector but to me he's just not the kind of difference maker that should be on a list like this uh bruno fernando is next i will give you the floor on bruno because you uh you've watched a lot of bruno i have um i don't know if i'd include him on a list like this i don't know exactly this is trying to accomplish because I mean we'll talk about omissions pretty soon, but there are two really big ones that would are way ahead of, of Fernando. Um, so I, I analyze these guys more from a prospect perspective, not like their impact on college defense. But for Fernando, I don't know if he finishes enough plays defensively. Like sometimes he's late to react, sometimes he doesn't challenge shots. There's some pick and roll defense issues as far as his positioning. You can go down the line. I mean he's not a bad defender. I think he's fine. Um, I, I don't know if he belongs in a list like this. Like if he's in discussion with a Brandon Clark, for example, they're on different wavelengths here. Yeah. So like to me, Bruno is like a solid college defender uh, who gets most of his value from killing the glass um, and blocking shots. I don't know that he's necessarily like an elite rim protector though. I agree with that very much. Uh, Wisconsin's Ethan Happ is on this list. This is pretty obviously just an inclusion. Uh, 
because he gets block or he gets steals and gets like the occasional block and looks like he plays super, super hard. When Ethan Happ is on the floor this season, Wisconsin gives up 0.94 points per 100 possessions. When he's off the floor, they give up 0.84 points per 100 possessions. Part of that is situational because uh, a lot of those uh, possessions where he's off the floor are, you know, later in games that they had already won this season. But that's a pretty stark difference in my opinion. Uh, he's allowing, or when he's on the floor, Wisconsin's allowing 46.6% uh, at the basket versus 42.3 when he's off the floor. Uh, d- just a very strange, strange uh, inclusion to me. It just feels kind of more like a pedigree pick, yeah. honestly, just because he's a very notable college name. He carries that team. So I, that's how I view it. I, I mean, he's obviously a smart player. He does. He has really great hands defensively. There's a lot of pluses on that end. He moves well I, I on the watched, perimeter, too, for a He big. does have good feet. Yes, 100%. So they're definitely learning traits. Like, I'm not looking at this as, like, a total injustice. Like, it's fine for me. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> he, he's definitely not a top 15 defender in the country, though. Like, I, I just can't get behind that. Uh DeAndre Hunter, Virginia. We talked about this earlier. Totally reasonable. Kyler Kelly at Oregon State. Oh, boy. I love Kyler Kelly. <laughs> I love him unconditionally. Uh, he is just genuinely one of the best rim protectors in all of college basketball. He has like a 19% block rate right now. Um, and he's doing that against high major competition. Uh, Kyler Kelly, in terms of Oregon State's defense, when he's on the floor, uh, they allow 37.9%. Uh, from two-point range when Kyler Kelly is on the floor. That is bananas. That is impossible, basically. Uh, And he just totally shuts the shit down inside. He is awesome. Uh, Should be on this list. He would be a top five pick for me. Matt Mooney from Texas Tech, really good defender, best defense in the country. Great. Jordan Murphy at Minnesota, probably a little bit. Jordan Murphy's a really good defender. I I don't really have like a... He he would not be in my top 20. I would say that. Uh, I think he's a fine defender. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that a lot of this comes from him just being one of the best defensive rebounders in the country and people just looking at that. Yes, that, that's what I was going to say is like some of these are just obvious statistical outliers. Like I do think Matisse Thibel is probably in this conversation. Like he's an absolute terror in the zone, but it's really easy to target his numbers because they're, they're right. so obvious. Exactly right. Um, so I would not have Jordan Murphy there. Tariq Owens at Texas Tech. Sure. Really good defender. Yep. Um, you know, don't really have an issue there. Xavier Simpson at Michigan. Absolutely. One of the three best on-ball defenders uh, of lead guards at the point of attack in all of college basketball. Matisse Thibel at Washington is Cole talked about just an absolute terror in that zone. He is a beast. Uh, Grant Williams at Tennessee. I think Grant does a good job defensively at Tennessee. I don't think he would be in my top four or I think he he would not be in my top three defenders on Tennessee. I think he's probably their fourth best defender. Interesting. So go into detail about that. <laughs> so I, I think that Schofield does a better job defensively than Grant Williams. I think that uh, he's the one that tends to be the most communicative out on the floor, uh, tends to be the one that takes on the more difficult assignments of the two. Like you would think they basically have the same body, right? So, you know, if Schofield is taking on the tougher assignments, that says a lot to me, right? Yeah, I, I think as a perimeter defender and like a matchup assignment based, if that's your approach here, I think that's fair. I just think that Grant Williams is a, a higher level team defender. Like I think he's got like yeah. elite instincts there. Grant Williams is a good defender. I'm certainly not like disputing that. He's a really, really good defender. Uh, yeah. Kyle Alexander, I think, is a more impactful defender for them just in terms of the way he shuts down the rim. Um, honestly, I think Eve Pons 
is just a fucking awesome defender. He is, he has turned into one of the best defenders in the country on the perimeter, in my opinion, just straight up. This is a team that has an elite defense. Uh, Maybe not an elite defense. They have a really good defense. Uh, And he makes an impact when he's on the floor. Uh, Two point field goal percentage, 40.2 versus 46.4 when he's on the floor. Three point percentage, 29 versus 31. Um, You know, turnover rates, uh, I believe go down slightly, but he is, he's just a beast. He can guard one through four and uh, he, he's just like impossible to get around because he's so strong and so quick. Yeah, uh, I think there's a ability to do that. And then the last one is Zion. What do you think of Zion as a defender? Because I cannot even, I can't have him on this list. I don't think he's a bad defender by any stretch. <laughs> I think he's a good defender, but I, I can't have him on this. Yeah, I, I would. Just because he is so destructive with his rotations, like sure. he just fucks, he just blows everything up. Like if you took him off Duke, they had nobody on the back line that can do what he does. Like he diagnoses plays. He's outstanding as a weak side rim protector. Um, he's a riverboat gambler, though, man. Like he he takes so yeah. many gambles. Like he that's why I mean this is another one of those numbers picks. I think I mean obviously like the splash plays are there. So when you watch highlights, you see the dynamic blocks. Like that rotation he had against Hunter. We didn't mention that in the matchup where he literally mirrored Hunter from across the other side of the key, and so Hunter went up and just blocked it. It was incredible timing on that. So there's some high level stuff that he does. But at the end of the day, I mean, is he the most disciplined defender? No, off the ball. Is he the most engaged all the time? No, but like he creates havoc. Like he maybe more than anybody on this list like he as a backline defender and just blowing up plays jumping passing lanes he 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 does that as well as anybody in the country right and and i think that that's reasonable i think it's reasonable to have him on this list i personally would not but i understand what they're going for here because he does genuinely instill fear in opposing teams right like you have to know where he is defensively on the floor at all times yes you do um so like I, I have complained about six of these people, right? So like the next question is like who would I put on it? Right. Uh I think that they missed two of the five best defenders in college basketball. Uh they did. I, I would say Charles Matthews is the best wing defender in the entire country. I it is egregious to not have him on this list. And then Trey Jones is one of the what, let's say three or four best point of attack defenders in the country. Uh I would say Xavier Simpson is up there and I would say Ashton Hagens. Uh Hagens is Hagens and Trey are basically similar level talents, just in totally different schemes to me. Like if you want to play an aggressive, uh, you know, help heavy scheme where you have him come down and try and force live ball turnovers and create pick sixes. Yeah. I would take Hagens over Trey. Um, if you are trying to have a defense where you pester at the point of attack, uh, you're, on-ball defense is just to essentially slow down the opposing team as they get into their sets and then to dissuade penetration. I would think Trey is the pick. What do you What do you think of that? I think that's fair. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that Trey's an unbelievable defensive player. Like his, his mirroring ability on the ball, his ability to pressure the ball, but also anticipation off of it. He's, he's like the total package for me as far as a point guard defender because at, the, at that size, it's really hard to be good defensively and he's definitely a plus in college like a huge plus in college i think he's actually gonna be a plus at the next level as far as his ability to defend at the pro level so i'm, I'm very much i think that's one of the huge omissions here matthews is, is just egregious to me like how the fuck do you watch that guy and not have him in the top five like yeah it's, it's like all of these voters should have seen charles matthews like michigan is in the top five right now like it's ridiculous yeah, I have one other guy from Michigan, too, that I think should be on this list. But Matthews yep. is like the most egregious omission to me just because 
I mean, the tape is there too. Like the flashes, like his ability to mirror in space is just un- his footwork is unreal. Like nobody moves like him as far as agility. It's just it, it's crazy to me. And like some of the anticipation plays, jumping passing lanes. This one, I can't remember what the game was, but this one steal he had earlier this year where he literally just blew up the entire action. He saw the pick and roll coming, and he just rotated from the corner all the way up to three point line, extended to steal his ball and dunk. Like I don't know if there are five other players in the country that make that read. So there's just a lot of things here that are that are flawed if you don't have Matthews in the top five. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, I, I would agree with that to be sure. Uh, you want to mention John Teske, I assume, correct? I do. I would agree yeah, with I, you for what it's worth. I mean, you have to give, if we're giving like Texas Tech credit for having elite defense, why aren't we giving that to Michigan as well over a guy like Taco Fall? Again, I haven't watched basically any of Fall, so I, I, I don't know how to contextualize this really with him. But I, it's hard for me to imagine there are 14 other like more impactful defensive players. Like You could probably name like five or six potentially in the college, but the way he defends pick and roll in that scheme, just yep. his attentiveness to detail, like uh, he has to be in your top 15 if you're making a college-based award on defense. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I would have Marcus Garrett on this list from Kansas. Uh, Kansas right now yep. is the top 10 defense in the country. Uh, Dedrick Lawson, not really a great defender. Uh, LeGerald Vick, I think his gotten better but is still not necessarily a plus in that regard Devon Dotson is a good defender uh for sure but Marcus Garrett's the guy that makes that defense go uh just takes on the toughest assignment on the perimeter every single night he can guard one through four uh he does make things happen in terms of creating live ball turnovers that that's just to me he definitely needs to be uh on this list uh, I would look at Kavarius Hayes at Florida he is a monster he is a pretty good rebounder he's an elite rim protector he does a great job uh guarding pick and roll he creates live ball turnovers because he has really good hands uh I am overall a big fan of Kavarius Hayes uh I would also point out Christian Doolittle at Oklahoma. He is tremendous. He is six seven with like a seven foot wingspan, can guard legit one through five. Uh doesn't necessarily create the action plays, but you know, they're just able to throw him on just about anyone in the country, and he makes an impact every single time. Uh to me, he is the linchpin as to why Oklahoma has gone from 85th in the country defensively in the Trey Young season last year to 12th in the country defensively this season uh, with Christian Doolittle really anchoring that. Uh, in terms of some other guys that I want to bring up, let's see, who, who else? Corey Davis at Houston is an absolute stud. Uh, he is a Pest at the point of attack. He can guard off ball guys that really run through screens. If you go back and watch the tape against Utah State with Sam Merrill, uh, Sam Merrill is one of the best off ball players in the country and he just chased him around screens constantly. He's given up like four or five inches to Sam Merrill and he just absolutely made his life a living hell in Houston. Again, top 15 defense in the country. Uh, to me, they should probably have representation in the form of Corey Davis. Um, Trying to think if there's anyone else. Who, who else? Is is there anyone else that stands out to you? Honestly, no. I mean, Hayes that you already mentioned from Florida has awesome advanced numbers. Like his defensive blocks plus minus is like best in the country. So I'm guessing that aligns with what you're seeing. I haven't seen too much of Florida. I haven't seen Houston since they played Oregon. So I can't really contextualize a lot of these guys. So I my three-man omissions are mostly prospect-based um, outside of Teske, who's like a fringe prospect. I guess some people think he is. But those guys, like Matthews, Trey Jones... And then Teske or the guys are are just so clearly in the top 15. The rest of these guys are like ancillary to me. So th- there's uh, two other guys that I want to bring up. Uh, one of them is like a very, I think they're actually both pretty real long-term prospects. Uh, the first one is Nemius Quetta at Utah State. Uh, how much have yep. you gotten to see of him? 
I've seen, I think, two games now. Um, yeah, um, he's <laughs> a very physically imposing defender at the college level for sure. So they have improved from 165th defensively to the top 30 defensively this season. Uh, part of it is they're doing things differently under Craig Smith. But the uh, biggest part of it to me from a uh, personnel perspective is they added Quetta, who is this just Portuguese dude who is 6'11 with a 7'4 wingspan, blocks out the sun, 12.2% block rate, 25% defensive rebounding rate when he's on the floor. Um also, when he's on the floor, team shoot 38.7 from two-point range, which is crazy. Um, it's just bananas what his impact is. Uh, they turn the ball over 20% of the time versus just 15% of the time when he's off the floor. He, he is a monster defensively. Uh, and then the last guy I want to bring up is Mamadi Diakite at Virginia. I think he might be... I get why you can't put him on this list because he is playing like... 18 minutes a night. You know what I mean? Like he's not playing a ton of minutes, but he is just an absolute beast on defense. He blocks the weak side of the uh, rim. He is just, he just destroys pick and roll action. His feet are so good. Uh, He's he's just so fast. uh, He recovers so quickly within the context of that scheme because you show and recover out. He just destroys everything that opposing teams want to run out at the top. And then you throw in the fact that he is a really imposing weak side rim protector due to that length. Just just an absolute monster. And you know what? Like if we are going to talk about Virginia, Jack Salt is a ridiculous defender on the college level. He is like you can make a case that he is more important to their scheme than DeAndre Hunter defensively, I think. You can make that case, absolutely. I think that all these guys do something a little bit different, which is what makes Virginia so unique. I get giving Hunter the recognition. He's kind of like the shutdown guy, where you put him on the best wing score. Like he defended Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and of course defended RJ and Zion. It's just, they, they all have very different roles. So, I mean, like obviously Hunter's yep. the best prospect, but these guys have legitimate roles. Diakite is a weak side guy, a movement guy in space, and then Salt is a rim protector, just being absolutely enormous. Um. In regard to, you know, like Romeo Langford, I don't know that I would put Romeo on this list necessarily, but really good defender. Uh, Matt McQuaid, I think, has an interesting case at Michigan State. Uh, Matt McQuaid, uh, you know, he's playing around guys that I wouldn't exactly call terrific defenders at Michigan State. Like, you know, Nick Ward has his problems out in space, right? Uh, Cassius Winston is not a great point guard defender. They've been missing Josh Langford for a little while now. Xavier Tillman, still a pretty big body defender. Uh, Kenny Goins, I think, is a pretty good defender. But I think McQuaid is kind of the linchpin of why they have a top 10 defense right now. They're obviously also just so, so good as a team. Uh, They rotate as one. They do a great job of making sure that... uh, there are no real breakdowns consistently. They've played together that group for so long that they really do move as one uh, within the context of that scheme. So I-, I would say McQuaid is the standout. I don't know that you have to have him on this list necessarily, but there are guys on this list that I think he is better than defensively. And just for context too, just with defensive blocks plus minus, they have two guys in the top 10, Tillman and Goins. So just mm-hmm. for the record, and-, and Tillman's number one. He's tied with Hayes and Tariq Owens. I haven't watched Michigan State since the beginning of the season just because they don't have a lot of interesting guys to me. So I I can't really speak to the eye test with any of these guys. Just something to bring up. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, I'm sure that part of this list is that, you know, folks went and pulled up the Ken Palm machine and looked at, oh, yeah, block percentage. Kyler Kelly, let's go for it. Steal percentage. (laughs) Uh, You know, Matisse Thibel's up here. Let's go with Matisse Thibel. Um, 
And like Ashton Hagens is up here. Let's go with Ashton Hagens. But I think that there are a lot of really good defenders that this kind of list does a disservice to, to be honest. Um, you know, we didn't even mention Josh Reeves. I think Reeves has taken like a pretty small step back this season defensively. Oh, but he's a he's a better defender than most of the guys on this list. I can't believe I forgot Josh Reeves, dude. That's very not to form. Um, yeah, Josh Reeves is one of the best off-ball defenders in the class. I think he's rated on the ball, but I don't know if you get a better off-ball defender. Like, I think Matthews is the best on-ball kind of perimeter point-of-attack defender who's also pretty good on the ball, like very good on the ball. Reeves is like elite off the ball, but uh, I, I don't know how you really reward that. It just seems like he should probably get more press because he does create steals. Like, his combination of steals and blocks historically has been really ridiculous, especially for like a 6'4 guard. So I, I guess they're just not getting the proper notoriety with Penn State this year. Yeah, I mean, the reason for that is that they're 7-12 and 12 and 0-8 oh and in the yep. Big Ten. You know what I mean? Like, uh, most of that has to do with their offense. Like, their offense is just miserable to watch. Uh, it is. It's, it, it's, it's a tough look. But uh, Josh Reeves is <laughs> just an absolute stud defensively. Uh, again, like, much better than most of these guys on this list. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to give a lot of players that weren't on this list some love because, uh, again, I think that something like this does a disservice to a lot of uh, really, really good defenders around the country. Yeah, I probably made some omissions as far as forgetting guys. I didn't put together a list before this. I was kind of just working off what this – 15 list was and the obvious right. omissions that were there but yeah just my last note here is like i think brandon clark is number one again i yes. think that he is, <laughs> he, he is the best defensive player in the country to me yeah and look like i'm not saying like i'm infallible when it comes to this stuff either like i'm sure that <laughs> i'm forgetting some of these guys too and i'm speaking on it pretty strongly um what i will say is like i, I feel strongly about those guys being better defenders for sure um it's just it's kind of where i'm at and, and you know yeah, I wish that uh, wish that this list would have done a better job. <laughs> I, I feel really strongly about this. I'm not going to lie to you because these guys put in a lot of really hard work uh, defensively. And you know what? Like, like, you know, guys like Tony Allen, you know, if this list was there, like someone like Tony Allen probably wouldn't have gotten the publicity because he's not like, you know, a star player with a big name. Right. And that yeah. that, that stuff frustrates me. I, I would like to see guys who I think deserve publicity, get more publicity for playing absolutely terrific defense. Yeah, I'm 100 percent with that. I've just given up hope a long time ago that lists were ever going to accurately reflect what I actually think about most things. So, <laughs> I mean, something like this, I don't know if the objective is necessarily like what the what the guidelines are, what the rubric is. I mean, we can kind of piecemeal it together and say, like, you look at the elite defenses, like you already said, look at the stats. But uh, you really got to watch the tape for a lot of these guys, too. I mean, like some yeah. guys aren't going to pop on every single stat line. You really have to understand the impact of what they do specifically. So I just don't put a lot of stock in a list like this, but I totally agree with you. I, I would like to see guys that are less heralded, um, even guys that are heralded, but just don't get the proper amount of credit, get that due. I think in an ideal world, that would happen. <laughs> yeah, like Corey Davis is sitting here with a 2% assist rate and like a 0.2% block rate. He's a guard, so like he's not going to get rebounds. Uh, he's not going to put up like the traditional counting stats defensively, right? But you go back and you watch that Utah State tape. You watch what he does to opposing point guards in the AAC every yeah. single night. You talk to coaches in the AAC. Oh, man, they do not like playing Corey Davis. They That guy is miserable to play against. And, like, to me, that's – he's, like, kind of the poster child for something like this because, to me – uh, that's a senior on a team that is in the top 20 in the country right now on a defense that is in the top 15 in the country right now. That's the kind of guy that should be getting the publicity that, uh, that is deserved in these cases. Yeah. And I guess just a general point. My last one is like traditionally 
in a mainstream sense, we kind of suck at evaluating defense and like what actually makes defense work. Like even in the draft community, like Hunter is a very known commodity, but people don't like him as much because he doesn't get steals and blocks. Like he's because he never gambles right. at all. He's a, like the most technically sound defender on, for the wing in the class. Like he he just doesn't make mistakes usually, and he he doesn't try to get steals like Zion or create events. So there's a lot of different ways we can contextualize defense. It's not just generating events. It's not just staying in front of guys in space. It's how you impact like the overall scheme. Like some of the points you made up about a guy like Teske, for example. Like those guys have a dynamic impact, and if we're going for college defenders, yeah. it's not just in the pro spot. Yeah, I, I think that we can do a better job of contextualizing defense, but I have my reservations. That's ever really going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think in a lot of times it's difficult because uh, it requires you to watch the game. It requires you to have a uh, a sort of uh, understanding of basketball concepts, which I think is really yes. tough a lot of the time. Like, just you know, writers have a lot of work. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of work that yep. has to go into just producing work and reporting and everything like that. Like I, I get it. I think it's, it, it's not the easiest job in the world, but I look at, you know, a list like this and again, I just get a little bit annoyed. That's, uh, that's where, that's where I'm at on it. <laughs> and what, what watching games is an enormous novel concept too. So, <laughs> but I agree. Time restraints are definitely to con- condemn a list like this to some extent, but really do wish that people would watch games more and like uh, actually put the time in, but Again, ideal society. <laughs> yeah, and like, look, like I've shit talked uh, college basketball media enough. You know what I mean? Like, uh, there <laughs> there are a few people that I think are very very good and are capable of putting a list together like this, but for the most part, I don't think that they are. Uh, this is not like the NBA where you know you have people night in and night out evaluating and watching what's happening and uh, everything like that. It's a much more narrative based sport. It's a much more um, you know, oh, what does this win do for your potential NCAA tournament berth kind of deal? Uh, yeah, you know that's that's frustrating, and uh, I think that that's where you know, like for instance, Kim English uh, tweeted about this a few. Uh, you know, I think it was like right around the turn of the year. He just gets frustrated with the college basketball media not um, not talking enough about what's actually happening on the floor, as opposed to just talking about you know what is actually uh what what does this mean in the grand narrative of it all uh you know nba writers do a much better job of that than college basketball writers i think yeah and i really just stick to prospect talk i mean i want all these kids to succeed but my wheelhouse is more just in the projection and not really dealing with all the ancillary college basketball stuff because that's just opening an entire different can of worms (laughs) no question um cole tell the people you've got going on um, I wrote a piece on the step in last week, later last week about big boards and kind of how to approach draft strategy, kind of debunking a lot of what we value in big boards and all of that. I just think it's kind of it's become like a big board centric culture for the draft talk. And I, I don't think a lot of the discussion actually has value. So I go into that and kind of how we should approach the draft from a strategy standpoint. Um, one quick note I wanted to make about our discussion earlier via trades for Mike Conley, <laughs> just so we have this on the record. Uh, Miami Heat are an interesting team there. Um, just because yeah. of their culture and they, they have some movable pieces. I don't want to go into that because we've already talked about that in depth, but just for, I guess on the record podcast points, uh, as usual, you can follow me on Twitter at Coles wicker and continue to listen to this podcast. Yep. Uh, we'll be back at some point with Cole next week. Uh, I'll be on with Dieter at some point this week. Dieter doesn't know this yet, but we're going to talk about all-star, uh, voting and you know, who should be an all-star and who shouldn't be. So, uh, 
yeah, uh, I would just keep tuned in for that. We will uh, we'll be back maybe Thursday with that is probably the best time for it. Uh, go subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Android, whatever podcasting app you listen to. Uh, we're up on that podcasting app. We're up on that distribution service. What do you call these? I, I don't know. Syndication things, I guess. Something like that. Um Go leave ratings and reviews, please. It really does help the podcast move up in the ratings, move up on the iTunes boards and stuff. And that gets the podcast out to more people. It just is a very valuable thing uh, for us here at the Game Theory Podcast. So uh, until next time, though, we'll talk soon.